God had asked me if I wanted to um, wear the headset. And I'd said no because I'd like to have something in my hands because I tend to talk with my hands so it gives me something to do. But then I thought, I'm not real sure if that's a good idea because sometimes I talk and get excited and I throw what's in my hand. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Time out. laughs> so um, yeah, just warning those on the first two rows. Um, Just hand it to me. Okay. Well, um, before I get started, I, like Todd had said, I'd come about a month ago. It actually took me about two and a half months to work up the nerve to ask him or to tell him that I felt like the Lord had given me something. And so I'd been preparing and studying, and Thursday night, the Lord changed it. And so um, it's still a little the same, but the direction is different. So, uh, yeah, y'all can keep praying for me. But... The first thing that I, I do want to do is um, to honor mothers because it is Mother's Day. So I have something I want to read. So this is um, about all women and all mothers. And if you have young children right now, it's really going to speak to you. And if you've ever taken care of young children, even if they're not your own, um, it'll speak to you. And so... Um, my willingness to carry life is the revenge, the antidote, the great rebuttal of every murder, every abortion, every genocide. I sustain humanity. Deep inside of me, life grows. I am death's opposition. I pushed back the hand of darkness today. I have caused there to be a weakening tremor among the ranks of those who set on Earth's destruction. Today, a vibration that called angels to attention echoed throughout time. Our laughter threatened hell today. I dined with the greats of God's army. I made their meals and I tied their shoes. Today, I walked with greatness. And when they were tired, I carried them. I have poured myself out for the cause today. It's fi finally quiet but life stirs inside me. Gaining strength, the pulse of life sends a constant reminder of both good and evil that I have yielded myself to heaven and now carry its stream. No angel has had such a privilege, nor any man, and I am humbled by the honor. I am great with destiny. I birth the freedom fighters. In the great war, I am the leader of the underground renaissance. I smile at the disguise of my troops, surrounded by a host of warriors, destiny swirling, invisible yet tangible, and the anointing to alter history. Our footsteps marking land for conquest, we move undetected through the common places. Today, I was the barrier between evil and innocence. I was the gatekeeper, watching over the hope of mankind, and no intruder trespassed. There is not an hour of day or night that I do not turn from my post. The fierceness of my love is unmatched on earth. And because I smiled instead of frowned, the world will know the power of grace. Hope has feet, and it will run to the corners of earth because I stood up against destruction. I am a woman. I am a mother. I am the keeper and sustainer of life here on earth. Heaven stands in honor of my mission, and no one else can carry my call. I am the daughter of Eve. Eve has been redeemed. I am the opposition of death. I am woman. And the artwork on it is, I don't know if y'all can see that, but it's a 
pregnant woman and her belly looks like the world. So I want to give this to Rachel because she looks very much like this right now. <laughs> yeah. And for those of you who don't know, Rachel has, um, she is pregnant with her third child and has two young children. And I know for me in those times when my kids were really young, because I had three under four, um, you just, I look back now and think, oh my gosh, I was crazy. But, you know, at the time when you're in it and you're just in it and you're a walking napkin and a walking tissue and you don't really see your, what you're doing. And I think that card says it beautifully. So what I wanted to talk about, what the Lord has laid on my heart um, for today is, the Lord is a great storyteller. And I like to tell stories. And, and all the, um, what we read in the Bible, I think sometimes we can read it and we bypass what's there. And so I just want to um, encourage y'all to use your imagination as I speak today. Um, I'm going to tell some familiar stories, um, but with a little different twist maybe. Um, and everything that God's written in his word, there's not anything that was by accident. And everything has a meaning, even to the littlest what Jesus said, the jot and the tittle, the punctuation, everything has a meaning. And I think we miss it because sometimes we just are skimming through it or we don't investigate. Because I also think God's favorite game is hide and seek. He hides things for us to find, whether it's in his word or whether it's in creation or just in our personal relationship, he hides things for us to find. And so I think there's lots of things that's been hidden, even in his word, that we've not seen or understood. So um, the other thing that I want to say before I get started, too, is that, uh, you know, the Lord designed relationship. That was his whole reason for creating man was because he wanted to have relationship with them. And, and through that, you know, we have relationships with people. And I think each of our relationships, the title of that relationship shows a different way to relate to God. You know, we are... Um, in Scripture, we're called slaves, we're called servants, we're called sons, we're called the body, and we're called the bride. You know, and all of those look very different. And so when you become a mother or a father, that father's heart of God takes on a whole new meaning for you because now you have a child and it, you realize what that means. And, and it just kind of opens up another side to him. And then we're also a friend. You know, Jesus is a friend, and he's also our brother. And so when you have siblings, it also opens up a different way to relate to the Lord and exposes another part of his heart. And so um, I heard somebody say one time that the angels that are around God's throne, you know, it says they, they have lots and lots of eyes on them, and they're constantly crying holy. And I heard somebody say that they have so many eyes because they're constantly seeing a new part of God that they'd never seen before. And so... He's bigger than what we've experienced or what we know, and um, we'll have all of eternity to, to um, live that out and to experience more of him. But, and so <clears throat> relationships are important, and the way we are in a relationship reveals the heart of God. And so I, um, like a good storyteller, I like to start in the beginning, so I want to start in the beginning, which is Genesis. And Genesis, I think, is full of truths and full of things that we can just so easily bypass, especially the first two chapters where it's talking about God created. 
And so if you go back, and before God spoke, and before he created, before he said anything, he had an idea, for lack of a better word, I'm going to humanize it for a minute. <clears throat> he had an idea of creating because he was wanting someone to love. And so in this idea of creating, before anything happened, there is a couple of things that we know took place. One is that he knew his son would die for the sins of the world. It says Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And what I find interesting is in Revelation, that's who he is. He's constantly spoke of in Revelation as the lamb that was slain. And only one time is he mentioned as the line of the tribe of Judah. But it's that lamb that that had to take place for all of us to enter in. <clears throat> the other thing that we know that happened before God spoke and created was he saw each and every one of you. He not only saw each and every one of you, but he saw all the people from the times past and times forward. He saw all of us, and he loved us then, and he loves us now. Whether we decide what it, no matter where we were, he loves us and loved us. And so um, we know those things for certain. And so then God spoke. And when he spoke and he said, let there be light, you know, we can so easily just read that and go, okay, so there was light. But what I think happened was time was created, space was created. All, I mean, God was all. There was nothing besides him. And then when he spoke, let there be light, there were other things besides God. There was time, there was space. I think all science was created and all math was created at that moment of let there be light. So it's not just that there was this light. I mean, there was so much more to that. And I think, I personally think that physics is just now stumbling upon some of that truth of what was there when God said, let there be light. And so then he continued to create for five days. And it says that he told the earth to bring forth the animals and beasts. He created the, the birds and the fish and the things that creeps and, um, yeah, everything. So on the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image. And so that's your first clue that there's the Trinity because it says in our image. So it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they were there. And so he created man in our image. And then the Bible, it says, um, and this is Genesis 1, not sure of the verse, but um, it says, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created him. So when he created man, man was both male and female at the time of creation. Okay. And I always read that and thought, well, that's really weird and just kind of skimmed over it. And it um, wasn't until like in the last couple of years um, actually thought about it and found the answer because God is faithful to his word. He says, if you seek, you'll find. And so I started seeking out what that meant and um, I was able to find what I felt like was the answer. So, um, and in that part of creation, when you go to Genesis 2, you know, again, it's, it's one of those things you can just skip over, and it talks about that God created Adam, <clears throat> or man, which also Adam means man, and his image, and then the Bible says that he brought the animals to Adam for Adam to name, and 
I think that that was a part of God created the animals, but then when he brought them, the animals to Adam, when Adam gave them their name, because he's created in the image of God, we have power in our words. And so when he spoke, this is a horse, it gave that horse an identity and a purpose. <clears throat> and so I think it was a part of the um, co-laboring. That's an example of co-laboring because the Lord made the earth for man. And so I, don't, I also want to say that I don't think Eve was an afterthought. You know, she wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't like God said, oh, we forgot something. <laughs> um, he, I think the reason why he brought the animals to Adam to name, he said it's not good for man to be alone, and he needed Adam to see that. Because when Adam was there and he brought the animals in, I mean, Adam was probably a pretty smart guy, I would think. You know, he had God right there to teach him everything and to tell him everything. And so here came this animal, and God said, what is it? And he goes, it's a dog. Okay, but there's two of them, right? So then some more animals come through, and as the animals come through, there's two of every animal. You have the lion and the lioness and the bull and the cow. And so I imagine that Adam probably was wondering, well, why is there two? of every animal, and there was only one of Adam, and so I think God needed Adam to see that there was something missing, like there was, everybody else had two, but he was only one, and he was in the image of God, he understood, I believe Adam understood he was created in the image of God, but why were all the animals one? And so when, once Adam realized that he was alone, there was no one else in his likeness, the Lord made Adam, says, to go into a deep sleep, which is a type of death, I believe. I actually wonder if Adam slept before that time. Like, would you sleep in the Garden of Eden? I mean, I, I don't know. And, um, but he fell into a deep sleep, and the Bible says that God took the rib, made sleep fall on Adam, and that he went in, and he reached into Adam's side. And I imagine that when God did that, that he paused for just a minute and he looked off to a distant time when another man would be and his side would be pierced and something would be drawn out. And so he paused and he reached in and he pulled out a rib. Adam's asleep. You know, he has no idea what's going on. And from that rib, that feminine part was taken out of Adam. And then not out of dirt was Eve made, but she was taken out of that rib. And the Lord molded her and sculpted her and designed her. And everything that was feminine was placed in Eve. She was hidden in Adam the entire time, and he didn't know it. And so I also think, in the way my imagination goes, is that when Adam woke up, he probably knew something was missing. You know, I don't really know if he felt pain. But he probably knew that his intuition might be gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, some of that, some part of beauty was gone. But that it was missing, I, th I think he realized it. Like there was something wasn't quite right and that he didn't know. And so when God, the Bible says that God brought Eve, that God brought her to Adam. And when Adam saw her, he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
She'll be called woman because she was taken from man. And so he knew, like, he had already seen the animals and that they were different. And so now there's this person who wasn't there before, and Adam knew that she was taken out of him. And so it was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And so then he called her woman. Okay. What's interesting is that he, he got to name all the animals. Now I don't know if that just means that he said you're a dog, or if he said, you're a dog, and now your name is Fido. But that's what he did with Eve. He said, okay, this is a woman. But then, after the fall, he then named her Eve, which means mother of the living. I heard somebody say one time that he, that it was kind of a prophetic declaration over her because she had not conceived that there was no children. And so when he said, mother of the living, it then empowered her to be able to produce a child or conceive a child. Um, so yeah, I want to fast forward a bit to, um, when Jesus came, you know, the Bible says that he's our second Adam. He was the second Adam that he came, but when Adam and Eve fell and they gave up their authority that God had given them on earth and they handed it over to the devil, the enemy had full reign of the earth, basically. And so Jesus came to take back that authority and to earn it back. And the way that he was going to earn it back was to die on the cross. And, and God knew that from the beginning and still chose to create. Now, I've got to back up for a second because I remember for the longest time, I always wondered, well, why did he put that stinking tree in the garden anyway? You know, why did the, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil have to be there? Like, why would God do that? Because he knew that Jesus was going to have to die. So why would God put the tree in? And um, I've learned that with love, love always provides a choice. And that God needed man to choose to love him. That if there wasn't a choice there, then it wasn't really love. And when I heard that, rocked my world. I mean, you had to, I had to go back and look at everything else I had ever called love. Because love always provides a choice. And so... Adam was given the choice, and so was Jesus. It talks about um, in the Gospels that Jesus was tempted by the devil. And that also says later that he was tempted on all points but without sin. He always had a choice. He even had a choice to go to the cross or not. When they came to arrest him um, and the guards came, they had their swords drawn. Um, Jesus asked them, he said, why are you coming with swords? I Don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels to come and rescue me? And he chose to go, and he chose not to sin. He chose to not give up when he was tempted by the devil. In those 40 days, he didn't turn the stone into bread. He didn't jump off to the angels would um, save him. He didn't go ahead and worship the devil so the devil could give him back the kingdoms. He knew what he had to do, and he was willing to do it. And the Bible is very clear. It says that the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And we were the joy. I mean, I don't think that that's a surprise. We were the joy. We were the ones that he thought about when he was enduring the cross and, and the crown of thorns and the lashes on his back. And I want to read something to you. And just to make it clear about what Jesus did when he was on the cross. You know, the Bible says he became a sin, though he knew, no, he became sin for us, and he became a curse for us. And so I just want to paint a picture here. I got this from a book. Um, 
And so I want to list for you what was placed on Jesus' bosom. As the nails were driven into his hand, the first man, Adam, was there. Adam's race, the fallen self, the wall of division between heathen and Jew, all governments, principalities, powers, rules, and dominions, all laws, all rules, all ordinances, all holy days, all rituals, the prince of darkness and the kingdom of darkness, and even death, they were crucified with Christ. They were all put to death. They were all done. It was all finished. And once all of them were placed on his bosom, I imagine that's when he cried, it's finished. But there's another thing that was there on him, and it was you. You were also crucified with Christ that day. And you know, we're going to be having a baptismal service pretty soon, and just that's the point of baptism. You're showing symbolically and prophetically, more importantly prophetically, that you have died. You died with Christ, and that when you rise up, you rise up as a new creation. So all those things were placed on Jesus. He cried, it's finished, and he gave up the Spirit. Even then, he gave up the Spirit. So, I mean, that tells you that he could have given up the Spirit at any time. You know, I mean, as soon as he was up there, he went, okay, it's done. You know, but he didn't. He suffered. I mean, there was a point to that, and things had to happen. But um, So he cried, it's finished, and there was um, the Roman soldier was there, and they wanted to make sure that he was dead because... Um, I can't forget it. I forgot his name, but had gone to Pilate and said, we want his body. And so he sent the Roman soldier to make sure that he had died. And when, what the Roman soldier did was he took a spear, I think, and he thrust it into the side of Jesus. And that was the moment that God looked forward to when he pulled that rib out of Adam was that moment where his son was going to have died and that the, his side would be pierced as his blood and water poured out. And I won't, you to think about this for a second. I think that when he pierced, his side was pierced, that that was when the bride of Christ was born. But I believe that if Jesus is the second Adam, that the church, the bride of Christ, is the second Eve. That we have been given... A chance. So in that relationship where everything is modeled for us, Eve, women, even though we're all the bride of Christ, but there's something that women carry that shows us an image of what the church should be. Like we, and with Eve being called the mother of the living, I believe that the church, all the church, men, women, all the church, that we are the mother of the spiritual living. Jesus said that you have to be born again. The first birth is a man's decision, and it's a flesh and blood, but the second birth is that of the spirit. And so the church is the mother of that spiritual birth. And if you think about, well, guys, I'm not sure if you have children and you can see your wife through the pregnancy, you might have a glimpse, but women who've been pregnant know this. When you're pregnant, and you find out that you're pregnant, you love this kid. Like, you don't even know that it was even impossible to love somebody that you never knew. And at the moment that you find out that you're pregnant, you're willing to give up everything. You've never met them, but you know that you would die for them. 
And so then you're in charge of carrying this life. And you're already dreaming about what they're going to do and what they're going to look like and who they're going to be. And I believe that God does that with each and every one of us. In Psalms 139, it says that before one day of our life came to pass, he had already wrote about it. And that it talks about how precious are the thoughts he has for us. And so God also dreams about you. And I believe, though, for mothers in the natural, you know, we think about more practical things like they're going to have their daddy's hair, they're going to look like their grandpa. God is creating you. Like, that's the perfect example of co-laboring, I think, because the, it's the mother's job to take care of her body and to eat right and to have exercise and to not have stress, but God is the one that's knitting you together. It's knitting you together. So there's a co-laboring that takes place when you conceive a child and you're growing the child. And then even greater example of co-laboring is when you're in labor and delivery and you are delivering the child. Because I remember when I read that, um, see, Slade was two and a half weeks post-date, and Zeke was two weeks post-date, and so, like, that was a long time to be waiting for this child to come, and you're big and hot and miserable. And um, So when I found in the Bible that God, um, I think it was Paul, it talks about that God brought me forth from my mother's womb, I was kind of like, really? Okay, then, you know, why is this not happening? But it's a perfect thing, co-laboring, because God does pull, bring the child from the mother's womb, but there it is. that's why it's called labor. There is a lot of intense work to be done to birth this child. And so I think that's a part of the mother's, the church's heart for the, the lost should be is that these mothers love their children before they're known. They dream about their children. And then after their children are born, it doesn't matter what they do. You still love them. Like, they're going to make mistakes, and they're going to fuss at you and say, you know, they're just kids. And we've got to start seeing the lost like that. We've got to start mothering the lost and the newly saved that to realize that they are babes in Christ, that they're new, and they need that nurture, and they need that teaching, and it takes the whole body of Christ. It takes the whole bride of Christ. And um, I remember going to um, church services in the past, and on Mother's Day in particular, they would always read Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. And I never felt like I quite measured up. And to be real honest with you, at times I didn't really think I wanted to because it was just so out there and felt like it wasn't me. Um, I want to propose to you that in Psalms 31, starting at 10, where it talks about the virtuous woman or the radiant bride, that what the writer is talking about is a prophetic statement of who the last day's victorious church is going to be. So I'm going to read it to you in the Passion Translation, and I want you to kind of keep that in mind, that this is of the last day's church. This is the radiant bride that Jesus is coming back for. He's not coming back to rescue a weak bride. He is coming back to get his victorious, radiant beautiful, without spot or blemish, bride that he paid for. Okay. Okay. Now, this is the Passion Translation, just so you know. If you haven't ever read that, now it's really good. Like, even the footnotes are really good. All right. It says, Who could ever find a wife like this one? 
She's a woman of strength and such mighty valor. She's full of wealth and wisdom. The price paid for her was greater than many jewels. Her husband has entrusted his heart to her, for she brings him the rich spoils of victory. All throughout her life, she brings him what is good and not evil. She searches out continually to possess that which is pure and righteous. She delights in the work of her hands. She gives out revelation truth to feed others, like a trading ship bringing divine supplies from the merchants. Even in the night season, she arises and sets food on the table for the hungry ones in her house and for others. She sets her heart upon a nation and takes it as her own, carrying it with her. She labors there to plant the living vines. She wraps herself in strength, might, and power in her works. She tastes and experiences a better substance, and her shining light will not be extinguished, no matter how dark the night. She stretches out her hands to help the needy, and she lays hold of the wheels of government. She is known by her extravagant generosity to the poor, for she always reaches out her hands to those in need. She's not afraid of tribulation, for all of her household is covered in dual garments of righteousness and grace. Her clothing is beautifully knit together. A purple gown is of exquisite linen. Her husband is famous and admired by all, sitting as a venerable judge of his people. Even her works of righteousness she does for the benefit of her enemies. Bold, powerful, and glorious majesty are wrapped around her. She laughs with joy over the latter days. Her teachings are filled with wisdom and kindness. As loving instruction pours from her lips, she watches over the ways of her household and meets every need they have. Her sons and daughters arise in one accord to extol her virtues, and her husband arises to speak of her in glowing terms. There are many valiant and noble ones, but you have ascended above them all. Charm can be misleading, and beauty is vain and so quickly fades, but this virtuous woman lives in wonder, awe, and fear of the Lord. She will be praised throughout eternity." So go ahead and give her the credit that is due her, for she has become a radiant woman, and all her loving works of righteousness deserve to be admired at the gateway of every city. And so this is speaking of the church. And so I've heard people say sometimes that, you know, let me back up. Just like we sang in worship, he's worthy of it all. Worthy of everything, our praise, but his praise forever be on our lips because of what Jesus did. I've already read out the list of things that were crucified with him. He did it all. He accomplished everything to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. And he did, and he is mighty, and God can do all things, but God chose to give it back to us. There is work for us to do. And that we've already been victorious in it. The devil is already defeated. He's just got a really big mouth and he lies. So we're supposed to know. We're supposed to know the ways of the enemy. Well, that's it. He's a liar. So if something comes into your head that's like doesn't match up with God's word, then you already know it's the enemy and it's a lie and it's under your feet. And you've just got to get over those lies so you can go and accomplish the things that God has made for you to do. Because when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb, he started with a destiny and a purpose and good works. And around that destiny, the purpose and the good works, he then fashioned what you're going to look like and your personality. And he already chose who your parents were going to be because all those things were important in order for you to accomplish what he's given you to do. And so it's not that 
we go around saying we want the signs and the wonders and miracles and we're going to see people healed and we're going to raise the dead because we want people to look at us. We don't want because we're wanting credit and I think sometimes that's misunderstood to other believers who don't understand the purpose of it. But the purpose of it is because Jesus died for it, and that's what he's wanting us to do. He's wanting it. That brings God glory when somebody is healed. It brings God glory when the dead is raised. It brings God glory for somebody to be saved or set free from their addictions. And that's what we're called to do as the bride of Christ. He's, you know, we, we're children. We are sons of God. We are we understand God as the Father. We're friends with Jesus. But I think the thing that Jesus and God, the Holy Spirit, the one thing they want most of all, especially for the end times, is a passionate, sold-out lover. That's why we're a bride. We're a, we're a bride. And so when you think about that relationship of a bride and a bridegroom and just that love that they have and that they, that they are together in what they do, it's not that... Jesus doesn't want you to go and do something good for somebody because you're then going to get credit. He's happy if you get credit. He's okay with that because he's already paid the price for it to happen. The only way that you can do it is because he lives in you and you are in an intimate relationship with him. So I just want to encourage you to, to be what God has destined you to be. And if you don't know what that is, and just go spend time in his presence in that secret place that he invites you to. The Lord, for me, gave me a vision of what that secret place is. And um, it was in a time of, of soaking and worship and um, very much kind of like what Cameron had said. You know, I was sitting in Papa God's lap. I was sitting in his lap. And he hugged me, but he hugged me so tight that I then like melted into his heart. But then it quickly changed, and I was no longer in his heart. I was a baby in his womb. And what's interesting about that is that in, it just spoke to me, because when I was pregnant, I started read, I read a lot. And um, I read a book called The Secret Life of the Unborn, which is really interesting. And in this book, it talks about how um, babies in the womb are aware of how the mother feels about them whether it's good or whether it's bad, even when as far as say that babies in the womb know how the mother's relationship with the father is, which I thought was interesting. I'm not real sure how they know this, but still, spiritually, I understand it, and this, the man who wrote the book was a Christian and a doctor. But um, So anyway, and I thought that, and so as the Lord, in you know, my time with him, and I saw myself as this baby in this womb, I could hear his heart beat. And I could hear his stomach gurgle. And I could feel his thoughts he had for me. And I could feel about what he thought about me. And I could feel his hopes and his dreams about me. And I don't think it's an accident that in Psalms 139, it says that he knitted you together in the secret place. And then in Psalms 91, it talks about when you make your dwelling, I'm going to butcher this, when you, when you dwell in the secret place of the Lord, it's, it's the secret place, it's in that secret place where you do hear your father's heartbeat, so I invite you to go to that place where it's just you and him, and you hear his heartbeat, and you hear his thoughts about you, and he tells you who you are, and he tells you the dreams he has for you, 
It's in those places where that intimacy has grown and then develops into this passionate lover who's your bridegroom. 